This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with a fast, easy, and completely online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com fool. What happens when the FDA says no to a drug that's patients only hope? We'll dig into the story of Sarepta Therapeutics and their rare disease drug candidate on this healthcare edition of Industry Focus. After that, we're going to check back in on the hepatitis C landscape because we just can't help but talk about Gilead Sciences. I'm Christine Hargis, and this is Industry Focus Healthcare. It is May 4th, 2016, and so to make up for my utter lack of pop culture knowledge a couple episodes ago, let me welcome Motley Fool Healthcare contributor Todd Campbell to the show with a resounding, may the 4th be with you. (laughs) Is that better? Hi, Christine. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. I think we've got two really interesting topics on our hands today. Todd, are you ready to dig in? I am. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Indeed. So, on April 25th, the FDA's advisory committee voted against approving, and it was a 7-6 to vote, a drug made by a company called Sarepta Therapeutics. And even though this was just a recommendation from an advisory committee, which means it's not an actual denial just yet, this was a real heartbreak of a decision. Big time. You know, listen, this drug is designed to treat patients with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, or DMD. And this is a very, very tough-to-treat disease. There's no approved medicines uh, that can curb it. And sadly, you know, most patients with it uh, succumb to their disease in their 30s. So there is a tremendous amount of emotion associated with this meeting. And just to back up for a second for listeners, I think everyone that's listening to the program probably knows that the FDA is responsible for approving drugs. And those approvals are based on a company's ability to show that the drug is both uh, safe and that it also works or it improves uh, the condition for patients. Prior to that approval, though, the FDA will convene a committee of experts to discuss the merits uh, of the drug. And and that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the advisory committee meeting at the end of April uh, that discussed the pros and cons associated with this drug and that, um, you know, sadly for patients, uh, wasn't able to put its full support behind giving this drug an early approval. And of course, the FDA doesn't have to follow what the advisory committee says, but they usually do. Typically, they do. Uh, this could be right. I mean, we're going to, you know, all sorts of exceptions and who knows, right? But this could be a scenario where they do look at the, the whole body of evidence and wait patient testimonials more heavily than maybe they would in other disease indications. Um, And that's based on the fact that, you know, if you listen to the FDA's comments from their, you know, head of drug development or drug evaluation, I should say, uh, Janet Woodcock, Woodcock seemed to indicate some support for, you know, erring on the side of caution as far as approving a drug drug that may help this tough-to-treat indication. Whether or not that pans out with a, an FDA green light at the end of May when the official decision is supposed to come is anyone's guess. But that's what a lot of industry watchers are, 
are thinking and a lot of patients are hoping for. Yeah, I would agree that Janet Woodcock's commentary did seem to be the one bright spot out of this thumbs down from the advisory committee, because she carries a lot of weight in these decisions. And she made comments that were seemingly pretty positive. But the thing is, this wasn't really your traditional trial. It was a trial of 12 patients. They used a quote unquote historical control group, meaning that it wasn't your standard trial where you have a treated group and a control group and you can compare them. So the efficacy of this drug is a little bit questionable at this point. And the other side of that coin is it's also going to be very, very expensive. So there's that side of things to consider as well. Right. We're not talking about, okay, let's let's approve a drug that you can go down to Rite Aid and, and buy, you know, like vitamin C for six bucks a bottle. You know, I, this is a rare disease. It, it only affects uh, 50,000 people in the world or in the developed world. And of those 50,000 people, it only targets about 13% of them. So only about, you know, five or 6,000 of these patients are amenable to um, the way this drug works. So you're talking about a very small patient population. You know, in preparation for today's conversation, I did um, take a look through the briefing documents that the FDA had said, sent to the ADCOM committee prior to their review. And I wanted to just go over one quote because it, it really talks to the point you just made about the trial size and, and the trial design. And in the briefing documents, the FDA wrote, the FDA has concerns regarding the comparability of the treatment groups and the overall persuasiveness of the historical control comparison as described in the briefing materials. In fact, the clinical course of the 12 patients participating in the study appears to be within the expected natural history of DMD. So you could see going into the ADCOM meeting, the FDA is saying, okay, we've got a very small patient population. Uh, what is being reported is not you know, it's within what would be expected normally in the course of this disease, probably, you know, some some periods where, where things are good and other periods where things are bad. So who knows whether or not this was a placebo effect where people knew they were getting the drug and, and they felt better because of that. And, you know, Christine, I mean, this is a science organization, right? Indeed. So, you know, they've got to look at the science. They they're They're looking to see if there's an actual scientifically provable fact that this drug improves outcomes for these patients. And I think when push came to shove, the ADCOM committee, as much as they wanted to be able to say, yes, approve this drug, they couldn't reconcile that. Yeah. So emotions aside, because obviously there are a lot of emotions tied up with this disease. As an investor, what would be next for Sarepta if the FDA says no come May 26th? Right. So there are a couple options here. May 26th, the FDA is going to give their official uh, go, no go. If they say go, they'll probably require a confirmatory trial. Likely, every patient that's available for this drug in the U.S., if it's approved, is going to take it, right? There's no approved treatments. This is a, a devastating disease. So you're talking about a patient population of a couple thousand probably in the U.S. Who knows what the pricing of this drug could be? Rare disease drugs, oftentimes they'll carry six-figure price tags. If they price it at 100 grand, a couple thousand people take it. That's 200 million in sales. Um, the market cap in this company, though, is already 834 million. So investors need to think about that. Okay, is this already pricing in the potential for approval? 
if the FDA gives a no-go decision, then Sarepta's in a tough spot because it has to say, okay, well, do we now invest in a placebo-controlled study that is going to cost us a lot of money and could take one, two years before we can get back in front of the FDA? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know how that's going to play out. You know, they have $192 million in cash on the books, and their operating expenses were $220 million last year. So I'm not sure. This is a risky stock in my, in my view. Extremely risky. This is definitely a make-or-break kind of story. Before we move on to the next portion of this episode, this episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. We all know, whether from firsthand or from friends and family, how frustrating getting a mortgage can be. With Rocket Mortgage, you can easily get a custom mortgage solution all online, even on your phone or your tablet. Rocket Mortgage lets you easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button, bringing mortgage approval process into the 21st century. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. All right, so second portion of the show, we wanted to talk more about the hepatitis C landscape and Gilead Sciences. Shocking, right? Have you heard of Gilead before, Todd? (laughs) Listeners know we talk about this stock a lot. And let's explain for a second why, right? I I think that's a good idea. Gilead Sciences is a massive, it's it's one of the largest biotech companies, if not the largest biotech company, right? They do $30 billion in sales. And they market uh, 2H hepatitis C drugs that, uh, you know, if you combine the sales of those, make it the biggest selling uh, drug in, in, on the planet. You know, it outpaces Abvis Humera by a couple billion dollars a year in sales. We're talking about, you know, a, a massive story. In the, and that's why we spend a lot of time talking about it. Yeah, I would say it's like the apple of healthcare. That's a great analogy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Gilead Sciences reported their first quarter earnings results um, and it had a couple surprises. Yeah, this is the first disappointment in a while that I can remember. Right. You know, I think industry watchers were looking for earnings per share of, uh, I want to say it was like, uh, I don't know, 314, something like that. They ended up getting 303. Um, and that's that's not normally what happens. It's usually Gilead Sciences sandbag, quote unquote, the uh, the projections so that they can under promise and over deliver. That didn't happen this time. Yeah, most of the disappointment stemmed from their hepatitis C franchise, in which product sales decreased six percent year over year to four point three billion, which is still an enormous amount. And that was largely driven by a decrease in Harvoni sales, which is one of the hepatitis C drugs within the United States. Yeah, it was all Harvoni. There's there's no no getting around it. It was all United States. Savaldi's sales increased and Harvoni's decreased. And the reason behind that is competition, competition, competition. You know, a couple of years ago when when uh, uh, Gilead Sciences first launched these drugs, it had a monopoly. So it priced these drugs at eighty four thousand for Savaldi, ninety four thousand for Harvoni. Um, but since then, you've got Avi launching Vicarapac. You've got Merck launching Zapadia earlier this year, and as a result, there's a price war. Yeah, I actually, I kind of think that that's almost a secondary force happening right here. It, maybe not secondary is not the right word, but like a preliminary force. And when I was reading through this earnings call, I kind of broke it down into four major reasons why we saw this decline. 
And of course, this is what management is saying. But so they highlight first expanded access, which triggered lower price points as per prior negotiations. So they had these contracts with their payers, basically saying, if you provide the drug to more people, then we'll give it to you cheaper, which, you know, the economics of that makes sense. And that's what we saw is that there was this expanded access and it triggered the negotiated prices to get lowered. Uh, Second item is that they uh, expanded their reach into lower cost segments like the VA. Third, uh, shorter treatment duration. A lot more patients were taking it for eight weeks as opposed to a longer 10 or 12 week cycle. Um, And the fourth thing is foreign exchange, which I kind of like to ignore that because it doesn't really mean much for the business itself. But that did affect HCV revenue by 8% year over year. And so I think those four things, well, three out of the four, are somewhat driven by competition, but they're also not really as menacing and bad as competition would imply. I mean, this is a company that still has really, really strong market share, 90% plus, and they're just seeing broader access to people that are not quite as sick and therefore are, are seeing lower price points. Right, and that's a natural. I guess that's the natural progression of the market. Right, we've you know, at first you have massive warehousing of patients who are the sickest, uh, and then those patients get treated. And once you've worked through those patients, um, uh, then you can start to expand it to, to other people. But you know, when you're talking about a uh, indication that affects you know three million people here in the United States, 150 million people globally, or uh, some t- some estimates are higher than that. Um, you know, you're willing to cut the price a little bit in order to make sure that everyone who is infected um, can get access to this treatment. And you know, if you look at what's happened since Savali's approval in 2013, um, I think it's roughly uh, a million people have been treated uh, with hepatitis C drugs. Uh, 800,000 roughly have been treated with Hep- Gilead Sciences uh, version of those drugs. And you know, obviously, you want to get to a situation where you're able to treat as many of these people as possible, so that you don't see as dramatic a, a drop in revenue as your price is forced down. So, I mean, if if Gilead Sciences was able to get seventy thousand or sixty thousand for their drug prior to Vicarapac, then they were able to get fifty to sixty after Vicarapac, and now they're getting forty to fifty. Now that there are multiple competitors on 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 foot, you need to offset that. Uh, by by treating more patients. I think that that's an important thing for investors to remember is that major indication opening up to a larger patient pool. And that doesn't even include the potential for China. Um, you know, one of the things that, that investors should also recognize is that this drug is not available yet in China or Gilead Sciences drugs is not available in China yet. And Savali could theoretically make it onto the market there as early as 2017. And China that has a market tremendous. of 10 to 20 million people that have hepatitis C, that are known to have hepatitis C. Yeah, it's a tremendous. Now, who knows what the pricing will be there? Everybody's going to be lining up and submitting a bid and saying, approve my drug, approve my drug, right? I'll give you the best deal. Um, you know, you talked about the VA. Um, you know, the VA has had some funding issues uh, when it comes to paying for hepatitis C drugs that weighed down a little bit of Gilead Sciences uh, at the end of the year. So there probably was some warehousing that came through in the first quarter now that funding has become available again. Not sure whether or not <clears throat> that'll probably level out throughout the rest of the year. But I think investors should be looking at this and saying, okay, well, yeah, you know, 
there's a little bit of a, a of of a hiccup here because of these issues, but you're still talking about a 16 billion dollar per year business for this company. And you're still talking about a company that's generating out 4 billion dollars in profit per quarter. This is this is far from a company that's that's uh, struggling. This is also a company that has quite a bit of cash on the books, 21 billion at last count. One of our listeners wrote into industry focus at fool.com. Uh, this is Mark Fitzgerald of Burlington, Vermont. He wrote in asking pretty much what Gilead plans to do with all of this cash and whether an acquisition might be in the cards. What do you think, Todd? That's a $21 billion question. It's <laughs> <laughs> exactly what it is. Yeah, I, they have a ton of cash. And the funny thing is that cash is after they bought back $8 billion worth of their own stock last quarter. They have been I mean, incredibly how friendly to buy back $8 billion and still have $21 billion in the bank. Um, uh, I'll note before we move on from that 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 was at an average price of $92.09 per share, which is 7.6 times 2016 earnings. So they're getting their own stock back really, really cheap. And they've absolutely implied that they think their own company is the best deal on the market right now, which is why we haven't seen a splashy acquisition. Right. I mean, if you're looking at it and you're saying, okay, you've got companies out there. There are medications that we've talked about in the past that theoretically could be uh, up for sale, that Gilead could walk in and say, okay, I want to expand in, into cancer drugs, so I'll make a bid for this company. But they're also looking at and saying, okay, if that if management or the board wants too much for that, why don't I just take that money and pour it back into my own stock? I've still got a great business. I, I, I can buy it cheap. Yeah, since 2012, they've repurchased 17% of their shares outstanding. And I do think that they are looking for external opportunities as well. But for now, they don't think they can do any better than Gilead. So right, it's going to be the right will. deal at the right price. Um, you know, the, their oncology team has suffered a, a few blows recently because Zydelig's trials got halted because of some safety concerns, um, and their oncology uh, head has since left. So you've got a situation now where they're kind of trying to fail it out. Where do we want to go from here? Uh, while they figure that out, why not just spend that money on dividends and buybacks, right? You know, they increased their dividend by 10%. So, you know, they've got plenty of money kicking around that they can use to reward shareholders and that they can continue to plow back into their own drug development. Um, they're working on a drug for NASH, for example, which is another liver disease that's that could be a huge indication. Um, you know, I think they're spending like $3 billion in R&D. So they've got plenty of money kicking around that they can use for future growth. Seems like our answer is pretty much the answer that management actually gives when questioned about this, which is that they'll make the right move when the right opportunity comes. Uh, thanks for helping me answer this one, Todd. If any of our other listeners have questions for us, feel free, write in uh, industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.